Hi, I'm Amy. And I'm Marcella. And we are both transracial and transnational adoptees, as well as licensed clinical social workers and trauma therapists. We have dedicated our lives to shedding light on the complexities of adoption and the systems responsible for them. We have seen both personally and professionally the silent and overt struggles brought on by this trauma, and we are determined to do our part to bring about healing. We know that some of the information we share and topics we unpack may be triggering and uncomfortable at times, but we feel the only way to promote change is to be honest by sharing our truths and elevating the voices of those in our community. We hope you will join us on this journey of listening and learning with an open heart and an open mind. Welcome to Adoptee's Dish. Hey everybody, welcome back to Adoptee's Dish. This is Amy. And this is Marcella. Thank you so much again for tuning in to another episode. We're really excited to, we've got our bearings back. We took a nice little holiday break and now we're getting back into the groove and we're really excited to have another guest with us here to talk about um, her work with the adoptee consciousness model. So Susan, thank you so much, so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you here and to have a conversation about all of the work that you put into this model. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We always love to welcome new voices into our space and especially leaders in our community who are doing such important work. And I'm excited for our community to hear what you've been working on. But before we dive into that, do you mind just sharing uh, a little bit about you and your background and what led you to the work that you're doing today? Sure. Um, Well, I identify as a transnational, transracial adoptee. I was born in Bogota, Colombia in 1972, and I was adopted by U.S.-based parents, white-identifying parents, and I spent most of my growing up time um, outside of Philly, and I have been searching for my first family since I was around 18 years old. And I'm from the generation that, um, and there are many generations, so let me preface that, from Colombia where adoption records were not accurate. Um, Many were falsified or lots of information missing. So I had quite a long struggle to find my first family. And I quite honestly didn't think I would find them, but I did. And I'm about to celebrate in February three years of knowing each other. Mm-hmm. Now, I, thank you. I live outside of Washington, D.C., and I'm a licensed professional counselor. So I practice um, independently for many years serving people uh, connected to adoption. And it ended up being mostly people who are transracially and or transnationally adopted it was probably my biggest client base. And then I transitioned to academia. So now I'm an associate professor at Palo Alto University and I teach clinical mental health counseling. So many, so many things there. And I know that, you know, we share the common background of Colombia, which is amazing. And I always think it's so interesting that, you know, that that common link is there. And yet, like, there's so many unique things about each of our stories. Like none of them are exactly the same. There's also nuanced, um, um, and yeah, it's just, it's crazy to think how, how many of us are, are impacted by, by all of this. Mm. Um, I'm curious, Susan, like, did you know that you wanted to go into work working with this population or was that something that just kind of like organically happened? Great question. No, I did not even think I would end up being a licensed professional counselor. I originally started in human services 
and I worked with immigrant populations, refugee populations, and then um, populations who were unhoused. And then I went into rehabilitation counseling because I really liked working with people who had um, struggled with mental health issues for quite some time. And then through that program, one of my professors suggested that I'd be a good professional counselor, which I had not considered. So I did that for many years and again, working with a similar population base. It wasn't until I was in my early 30s that I worked in a community mental health center and I had several clients who were either adopted and or identified as first parents. And then I thought, okay, at this point, of course, this, you know, it's never completed our own work, but I felt like I had done a good amount to feel ready that maybe I could work with this population since I so enjoyed it. And I went back to school for a postmasters in marriage and family therapy. So I knew how to work with family systems. And that's when I then launched my own independent practice. And it was probably around that time too, that I found a lot more people in my community. Um, so there was a lot of things colliding at once. I was probably going through expansiveness before I knew that that's what was happening. And that's when I started doing that work for quite some time. But I didn't start out knowing I wanted to do that. And I'm glad I didn't, to be honest. I'm glad I had those other experiences yeah. uh, because they all helped by the time I got to that point, they all helped totally. me be able to do it. Yeah. Well, and just doing this work can be so all consuming when you are also have the lived experience, there really isn't a break from it. So it, before we have to kind of really know what we're taking on when we take the plunge into serving our community, not that it's not wonderful and beautiful and profound, but it's just, it's just a different coming from a different vantage point for sure. Yes. And the boundaries get yes. difficult to maintain. Yes, a very good point. Yes, <laughs> very. as we all nod our heads in unison of the boundaries, right? We all know what we mean by that. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that we had wanted to, to touch on, Susan, was even before you guys had worked on creating the adoptee consciousness model, you had done a lot of research, um, particularly with Colombian adoptions and Colombian adoptees. Can you speak a little bit, I know that it's so expansive, the, the the amount of research that you've done, but just kind of some highlights of things that, you know, you have a particular interest in or just kind of where your research has led you over the years? Sure. Um, I started out by researching transracially adopted children in the school system because mm -hmm. when I was a doctoral student, I learned that updated information about school counselors working with that population was from the early 2000s and some were from like the 1980s and you can only imagine the kind of guidance mm. that was being offered so that was kind of my first venture into research and after that i had kind of been told through my doc program try to avoid things that are too personal to you so it doesn't turn into too much of me search as they might call it um so i wasn't discouraged from looking at adoption but i was somewhat discouraged from looking at colombian adoptees mm. and at the time there was really very little um, yeah. when i was in my mft program i did a little bit of research with colombian adoptees that eventually made its way into a book with some other publications but nothing extensive so once i finished i thought you know this what i keep hearing about and what i know from my lived experience is that 
a lot of people are finding that our documentation is not right. Yeah. Something is really wrong. And it's not just a me outlier thing, because I knew that about myself and some of my other friends who are around my generation. But then I kept reading it on the, you know, the social media. I saw it on the Vice article from 2016. And yeah. I thought somebody really needs to just put this in some kind of coherent language to have one narrative. So I did a very small case study and I spoke with several people who found exactly that, that their information was uh, illicit or um, falsified or all sorts of problematic issues. And I triangulated that with other data news sources that many of us are familiar with that actually indicated there was huge problems in Colombian transnational adoption during the 80s through the 90s. So that kind of was the impetus for some of the other pieces I was looking at. Ironically, before I found my first family, I thought we need to find out what it's like for people who are in reunion because I know they exist. Let's yeah. find out because again, there's a paucity of information about Colombian adoptees. There's not even a lot about many transnational adoptees in general, but certainly much less. So I then was able to interview, I believe it was 17 participants who had been in reunion with their Colombian birth families to look at what were some of the commonalities. Mm -hmm. And from that research, when I looked at it again with some colleagues, we noticed, wait a minute, we weren't even asking about illicit adoption practices. Yeah, it wasn't even a question, but it came up with so many people that we said, we have to run this again with a different analysis, looking at the illicit components. And we found that nearly half upon reunion found out all sorts of deceitful practices had occurred from uh, sale of children to coercion, just really ugly, unethical yeah. practices. So that was another publication that stemmed from that. Mm. I feel the heaviness with all yeah. of that. That's just such heavy, heavy stuff that I give you so much credit for diving into because it needs to be like highlighted and it needs to be like, that's like the really dirty underbelly of all of this stuff that nobody wants to talk about. Um, but I think that whether it's talking about Colombia specifically or just like other, you know, other places, like that is a very real reality that so many of us have to, come to terms with at some point. And it's, yeah, it's just really heavy to think about. Yeah, I think when we look at, I, I'm from Chile, I was born in Santiago, Chile. And mm -hmm. in Chile, we have the children of silence. And, you know, I'm not a child of silence, but my documents were all like altered. So th there's a spectrum for everything. And even in all of our stories, there is corruption all the way down to my my passport name being changed. Because I don't, I really fully believe that the government wanted to do everything that they could to make sure I could never find my way back home. Um, and, you know, we, we hear these stories from brothers and sisters in South Korea, out of Cambodia, I mean, just Guatemala, like so many different countries. It's kind of shocking. And I just like hats off to you for doing this work and diving deeper. Um, because it's standing up to a narrative that is so colored differently when we think of adoption, just like how society looks at adoption, what society thinks of what the adoptee experience is. It's always painted, you know, with like lots of rainbows and sparkles and glitter and like, oh, what a beautiful story. We're not really diving at all into how deep rooted this grief is and how deep this loss is like to those of us who are, are touched by this experience. This is 
truly life altering down to like the core of who our souls were born to be. Yeah. So thank you for going up against that. It's, 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 it's a big conversation. Yeah. Huge. Um, but one of the big reasons that we're here and wanting to have a special conversation with you is about all of the work that you've poured into the adoptee consciousness model. And I know that you have done that with so much support of other fellow adoptees. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of creating this model before we kind of dive into the different phases and steps? Yes, of course. And you know, I wouldn't be me if I couldn't be in the moment to say, Amy, hearing um, what you were sharing, one of the things I did is looked at Chile and Argentina to look at reparation models, not that they're perfect or not that they're even well functioning, but they're certainly better than what's going on in Colombia, which is at this point, nothing. And I use that as a comparison point to figure out where could we possibly go with Colombian reparations, um, because there's so many pieces that are similar. And then when you were mentioning all the other countries, somebody, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna be able to cite who, but it was on the ICAV website, created this graphic that was, I thought, brilliant, that showed these are the commonalities, no matter what country you're in, that are showing the corruptive practices. And they were almost universally the same. So the, joining of all of us at some point and it's already starting to happen i mean it's part of consciousness like we as a collective group are becoming aware and vocal about oppressive practices that have trampled on our human rights and we are rising up to do something about it but to get to your question marcella where did this start from uh the primary group that uh, created this model we have known each other some of us i want to say over 15 years but mm -hmm. four of us met each other in 2011 and ironically we met each other at um, a camp for adoptees like we were going to be the adult adoptees offering these programs to teens and children I'm sure you're, you've all probably done them. You're familiar with how that operates. And we instantaneously, even though we hadn't known each other before this moment, really connected. And we've been able to maintain that connection for so many years later. But one thing, one of the things that we talk about, in addition to the affirming adoptee solidarity, all of us transracially and transnationally adopted women identifying humans, we talked about what we were seeing in the community in terms of what language are we hearing about? What are we noticing online? Uh, what are we noticing on ground? And for many years we talked about this and it wasn't until probably one of the breaks during the pandemic when you could maybe travel again and we hadn't seen each other in person for several years because of the pandemic, we got together and we said, we really need to like flesh this out. And J. Ron Kim, Dr. Kim had, uh, this model from Anzaldua, who is no longer with us, but a brilliant scholar, and they are a Mexican identifying, Chicana identifying scholar that looked at third spaces and looked at this uh, world between not fully being Mexican, not fully being US, and also having a queer identity and all those different uh, intersecting pieces. and. The process, the conocimiento process, consciousness process, we thought this really fits with what 
we see ourselves and our brothers and sisters going through as adoptees. So we use that as a template. We also looked at other uh, Latin American scholars and their consciousness process, and we started really building this model. So that's that's what we did. We pulled in actually a younger generation scholar who actually also wrote about their trauma of consciousness and how they experienced trauma coming to consciousness consciousness about adoption structures. It's mm. really interesting to hear, and I like secretly like cheering on that this was kind of born out of some like Latin roots. I think that's like also just like for the three of us, something that's just like empowering. That's just really cool. Yeah. For our listeners, because I know that you guys have broken this down really beautifully. Can you share with us what the different phases are and just like a little bit about each one? Because I think that a lot of these and even just in reading and we'll put in the show notes links to all of this and things like that. But a lot of things and the way you describe it, I think really resonate for people of just like what that would look like and feel like for us as an adoptee. Sure, of course. And Amy, we purposely selected scholars of color to highlight. We we want, I want to take a moment to um, acknowledge, of course, Betty Jean Lifton, uh, one of our adoptee ancestors who created many helpful books about the adoption or adoptee development experience. They themselves were an adoptee. And this is where the out of the fog language we believe came to be and um, Lifton talked about it being like going through life with this kind of veil and then something happens, some kind of event, some information, some encounter and the veil is lifted and then you can never really put the veil back on. Um, So you'll hear a lot of people talk about pre-fog, out of the fog and there's nothing We want to be clear, we're not saying there's anything not okay about saying the out of the fog language. We just wanted to know, well, what happens then once once you're out of the fog, then what do you do? Like, how does it go? So to look at the different um, touchstones, as we call it, I want to start by explaining that we don't think of this, like many of us know about developmental phases where you have to go through one and achieve all the things that you're supposed to do in that. And then you go to the next, um, very westernized. We don't look at it that way. We look at it more as a spiral, meaning you you could be on the spiral multiple times throughout your life. You don't have to complete one to get to the other necessarily. So if you kind of have that framework in mind, we, we can start with status quo. And this uh, is where maybe you might think of it as when you have the veil on if you want to think of it that way. So often this might really apply to um, people who are still holding on to the dominant narrative of adoption, kind of like what you said before, Amy, you know, rainbows, unicorns, win-win. It's a strength-based, happy narrative. Um, No questioning of any other structural factors that could create inequity. And I want to be sure that I'm emphasizing that there's no judgment on that. There are a lot of really good reasons why we need to be in status quo. I was in status quo for quite some time. Sometimes it's an act of survival to be able to be uh, able to function in your adoptive family or in the community in which you were raised. So uh, 
one thing that I'll continuously come back to is the no judgment and empathy for anybody, no matter where they happen to be in the touchstone. The next is the rupture. And this, perhaps you can see pretty clearly, it's, it's kind of evident when this happens. This is when someone finds out some information, encounters an experience, maybe a racist encounter that they had never experienced before, finding out their birth certificate is falsified, you know, any number of things. And they're really jarred because it is opposite what they thought they knew about themselves, about their adoption narrative, about their families in many instances. So that could be a really challenging time to experience emotion-wise. From there, uh, the next touchstone is dissonance. And this is when um, you're almost, you know, trying to navigate this. I just found out this really jarring, life-altering information. And at the same time, I have the life I thought I had that's still here. So how do I, like, how do I acknowledge one or not the other? And this might be a time where people decide, I'm, I'm going to pretend it didn't happen. I'm going to yeah. pretend I didn't find that out. And I'm just going to proceed as if it didn't happen. Or um, I know it happened. I'm not sure what to do with it. I know I might need to do something. So I'm just going to try to figure out what to do right now. And it could be a really disorienting time particularly for people who are mental health practitioners. Rupture and dissonance might be a time when someone comes into counseling because they're completely torn up. They don't know how to make sense of something. Um, they're struggling in their interpersonal relationships with their adoptive family, maybe with their first family, with their partners. This all can be part of dissonance. And then from there, you go into expansiveness. And this is kind of, we call it sitting in the paradox. Um, it might be a time when you're able to see the both and of it all. Like, yes, my, and I'll speak from my personal experience. Yes, my adoption documents were falsified and there's a lot about my story that was illicit. And my first family had no idea that any of that was going on. So it, it kind of helps me do a both and, and fit that into a different kind of narrative. Um, it's not easy, but it's, it's a part of expansiveness. This is also when we see the explosion of brilliance within our community. This is where we see the amazing creativity, podcasts like yourself, uh, coming out and sharing information, offering more perspectives of how to look at certain events and building community. And then we uh, have the fifth touchstone and this, this can elicit feelings. So let me just preface it with that forgiveness and activism. So I'll save the forgiveness second. So activism by here we're talking about this is when um, maybe people are building coalitions to start repairing wrongdoings or it doesn't necessarily have to even be about adoption related um, issues it could be like the black lives matter movement where uh, transracially adopted black identifying persons are 
becoming involved with that movement as well. So it, it's a looking at what are systemic oppressive circumstances that we want to dismantle global. How am I going to be in this fight for the long term? I'm committed to it now. The forgiveness piece. I'll say what, what, what it isn't first. What it isn't is blanket saying it's okay, we forgive you, no worries about it. That is not what we mean. What we mean is each individual person may determine that they actively need to forgive some parts of the process for their own benefit as we know uh, for mental that based on their own individual choices maybe that could be an adoptive family member maybe that could be the system in general or it could be forgiveness for themselves even though we i i well i'll say what it is forgiveness for i was in status quo for 50 years of my life how could i miss all those things now i would argue there's probably good reason why that was the case but some people that that's part of the forgiveness process too. I know that that word can be triggersome, but that's what we, we're talking about when we, we get to that touchstone. So much good content. I feel like I was like scribbling and writing things down like every other second. And I know that this very much speaks to my experience. I very much echo the, you know, I was in status quo for, you know, more time of my life than I haven't been and just the you know work that you have to do to come to terms with that and realize that and I love how you named that that is so protective and so survivalistic for many of us myself included um it wasn't even something that I was consciously aware of it was just what I was brought into it was like I knew the script I knew the narrative that was just what was given to me and you know I, it was part of my survival. And so I, I, I appreciate that no judgment, full empathy approach that you all take in creating this, because I think that there can be so much judgment and guilt and shame for many of us about how long we remain in status quo. Um, and the gentleness of seeing that as like that was protecting you in some way, shape or form. That was how you survived. Like you didn't know any better if that was just what you were brought into, I think just brings so much um, gentleness to to that really complex touchstone there yeah so much goodness like there's so much in this model that so relatable it makes like just as an adoptee myself just I just feel so held and so seen and just so affirmed when I hear you kind of break and walk through these touchstones there's totally echoing what Marcella said, but one thing that I love is that you include race and ethnicity and the international experience in this model, which so often is unfortunately left out in these conversations and just kind of, you know, you know, the adoptee experience is a monolith, which while we have these universal truths, we universal truths, we know that this is like also a very personal experience for all of us. And I loved how you talk about forgiveness because sure, I can totally see why that might be very triggering for lots of people tuning in or listening, or maybe just first glancing at this. But that I think for me personally has been one of the trickiest pieces to understanding my whole story. I've been in reunion longer than that. I found my birth family when I was 15 and going through just like a very crazy uh, developmental period in my life when that happened and knowing how, you know, um, 
like my conception story and the heaviness in that I often struggle to forgive myself for just existing, right? Like to just take up space in this world and to just be able to breathe and to, you know, to just, just to exist feeling like I maybe altered someone's life or ruined someone's life or was just meant to be born to be a secret. And that reclamation of just the permission to exist and to live, I just, that to me just sent like a core chill down my spine that someone has language for this and can pair that, that tremendous amount of healing and work that I've had to do in this. So there's just, this is such a powerful, powerful, and I just know that this is resonating with so many people. So thank you again for the work that you've done. Right. Big, big universal yeah. sign there. Yeah. yeah. That's a yeah. lot, Amy. Thank you for sharing that part of your experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's one that, you know, Hermana, that's one that like other people totally like echo that of, I think that, you know, that is such a common thing. And even just seeing, you know, my work with clients of just like, there is this inherent feeling of unworthiness or this inherent feeling of, you know, shouldn't be or not enough or too much or any of those things. And I see along with that forgiveness and activism piece, just such a like reclaiming of that, you know, essence of ourselves that, you know, self that is just, you know, wonderful and amazing and just, you know, meant to be in all of those things. And that just seems like such a, such a huge part of that. And I love Susan, how you said, like, it doesn't necessarily have to be forgiving other external forces or people. Cause I think that for many of us, like that's really tough. And I know for myself, I always struggle with the no, like I need to hang on to a little bit of that pissed offness because there's some people that need to be held accountable. And I don't want to just let this slide. But I think that if we are able to target that inward and letting ourselves off the hook for, you know, how we had to adapt, how we had to survive, how we had to stick in status quo for a while, um, you know, I think that all adoptees deserve that opportunity to like lessen the load a little bit because the load that we carry is just immense. One of the things that I see a lot too, and you brought this up in the dissonance um, phase with um, like a lot of times this is when people are coming to therapy, right? Because they're kind of starting to notice a whole bunch of stuff and not really knowing where to put that or how to unpack that or what to do with that. I see this so often. And one thing that's interesting to me that I see, and I just want people to hear from us is that a lot of times I hear people are like, okay, I'm noticing all this stuff. And then I get in online spaces and I, I see all these other adoptees that are feeling this way. Now I feel almost like I have to be this way because this is what other people are experiencing or other people are feeling almost like a new status quo. Like in order for me to be able to hang in adoptee spaces, I have to be feeling this, or I have to be experiencing this or whatever it might look like for that person. And I think this just reminds us, I love how you said it's kind of like a spiral. It's not linear. I love that visual of a spiral because I can feel even in my own journey, just like how I can get like, even now, like, even now knowing all the things and doing this work, sometimes I can still feel myself slip back into status quo, right? Like that is a survival instinct. That's kind of like the roots that my tree kind of started blooming in. And so yeah, I, I really love that you named that. And I hope that people listening here know that this is a model that just wherever you are, it just makes total sense, right? And just and try to lean into the, what would the curiosity feel like to just lean into the, hey, this is where I'm at right now. And just noticing that that's okay. That's makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. I, I really like that you brought that up, Amy, because one of the things we also wanted to 
bring home for people is the divisiveness in our community, right? And we, we know that part of the goal of oppression is to get communities to be divided. So we want to emphasize that point of being kind and gentle and empathic to everyone in these spaces, from the person who's still firmly in status quo to the person who's all the way in forgiveness and activism. There's space and welcomeness. We want to welcome them in. And what we've seen happen, um, and I, you know, granted, I'm Gen X, so I haven't been on social media most of my life, um, but what I still see happen are if you have that one person in the group who's the status quo person, it's like a pile on by everyone else. And there's a lot of like, you're wrong and you're right. And it gets ugly. And then we push out people who might really need our support. Maybe today they're in status quo, but I like the term used, Amy, being curious. Okay, tell me about that. Now I know not everybody is a mental health provider and and nor should everyone be, but being curious can be something we can all do. I'm wondering what's going on with them, that that's, they're in status quo. And that tells us something, I don't know what, but I want to know more. And we need to include them, not push them out. And that's what we've been seeing happening. Just to remind everyone, when that happens, we are feeding right in to oppression. And I know, I don't think anyone wants, wants that. No, 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 no. And we don't don't know what it feels like, right? Right. Right. And we, yeah, I, this is like the hill that I die. And I always like somehow get back on this tangent that we're stronger together and that we really need to, I heard you even Susan talk about kind of like how healing that moment or that moment or, or period of your life where you were in connection with these other adult adoptees. And it was like an instant bond, right? Like it was instant community and it was an instant affirmation. And, and that's what we need to be doing is reaching out our hand a whole lot more and saying, you know what, we might be in different spaces navigating all of this, but I see you in this and, and I can, I can feel what that pain is like. And Hey, like I'm here to offer support along the way and not by any means to push you out. So yeah, thank you for including that in part of the intentionality in this model for sure. Yeah. I think such an important thing to name because it, it it is, it can get really ugly, especially on some of those social media spaces. And I think that it just like pits people that, you know, I would say are just at different points of the spiral, right? Like against each other and it can get really nasty. And then it's like, okay, like there's one camp over here and one camp over here. And it's just like, oh my gosh, like maybe the reality is like, none of us are going to absolutely agree on every single little thing, but that doesn't mean that there can't be really, you know, great work that is done and progress that is made. And Um, you know, we are still up against a whole lot of like non-adoptees that don't understand this stuff. So like, why do we need to be wasting time, like picking at each other when, you know, that energy I think could just be used for such more, so so much more. And I love the way that you even said it of just like, there's, there's this explosion of brilliance when like adoptees are able to, you know, share their stories and speak their truth wherever they are in that spiral. And that should be something that you know, is, is amplified, even if it's not representative of where you are in the spiral, like we are team, team adoptee any day, any day of the week here. Yeah. 
I also love kind of the permission to the spectrum of what activism can look like too, right? It doesn't have to be, and I, I this is another thing I see with a lot of people coming into consciousness that I think really put a lot of pressure on themselves that they single-handedly have to change the system. And I think they take that on, whether they even realize they're doing that or not. But activism to me, at least, can look just as you know, just standing up for yourself, even at the dinner table or at like a family meal, or maybe saying to a friend who maybe is considering adoption, you know, have you thought about it from this perspective? These little things can actually be really big shifts, just getting people curious about, oh, maybe I haven't thought this through, or maybe I have been doing something harmful. And all of that has a, a trickle effect down and, and that can lead to bigger things. Again, like we are better when we use our voices together and, and we kind of, you know, move from that that vantage point but i i really love how you guys create space for that part of this narrative too right like the change agent piece to all of this can look so differently for us mm -hmm. yeah for sure obviously this is you know like you were saying it's an ongoing process this is not something that i say like we don't ever graduate from this there's not some day where it's like all over we're continually on that spiral I'm curious, Susan, what are some ways that you have seen or that you like encourage adoptees as they are maybe navigating this spiral, like how to take care of themselves? Because this is like we've all said, like this is a lot. This is daunting. This is like feels earth shattering at times. How can adoptees take care of themselves as they navigate these these touchstones? Oh, this is so important because it could be so painful and for and still here we are like, what are we 2024 and I remember like in the year 2000 thinking, wow, we've all been so isolated for so long and now we're just, you know, finding each other. I think it was a Yahoo list, one of those old Yahoo lists and yet even now with all the ways that we can be connected. I still see people online who are still so very isolated and alone. So seeking community is really important when you're not even sure where to start or if anyone else in the world possibly could in any way relate to what you're saying. That requires being vulnerable and reaching out, but it doesn't even mean you have to post anything. It can mean you're just reading. What are other people saying? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. And here's the other hard part with all this, because of course I'm going to say mental health support, because how could I not, given my professional background? But yet we know that mental health providers have a long way to go to becoming adoption yeah. informed and understanding these narratives and not only understanding, but being able to help with the healing in that process that's a really still far off place although many more we have way more than when i started doing it um so i would always suggest seeking out mental health support using all the resources that i've seen out there that share how can you even find someone yes one study about adult adoptees not necessarily just transnational or transracial but in general 
um, but Amanda Baden, Dr. Amanda Baden and colleagues from 2017 looked at, okay, well, what does make counseling and mental health services satisfying? And really the bar is so low. It was, do they even mention adoption? Are they even able to know that this could be an identity or something I need to work on? Yes. Um, so really we, we're not asking for a lot as a community, um, mm -hmm. but I would say following the resources to finding mental health support if possible, knowing that there's so many barriers to that, not least of which is access and cost. There are a lot of really, um, well, at least in the Colombian, well, I don't want to say a lot. In the Colombian community, there are some support groups that are led by mental health providers. That could be a start. But also leaning back on what do you do for your general wellness and self-care? It's so cliche. And I know we over talk about it, but there are small things, just like you were talking about with activism. It doesn't have to be the cliche spending a lot of money for a massage. It could be putting your feet when it's not sub-zero temperature in the grass, touching yeah. the earth, smelling the air, being present. What are you doing to value yourself every day? Small things like that, like what you were talking about, Amy, how do we remind ourselves that even though we started in the way we started, which most of society denigrates, we still belong here on this earth and we're still valuable beings. How do you remind yourself and get in touch with that every day? Yes. Just so powerful. And I think that people in our community, specifically with these levels of complex trauma, like we really struggle with that. We struggle. You know, I know myself included, right? It was a really big struggle for me to figure out, like, how do I be present? Like, how do I just do something so small, like take a deep breath or go outside and get some fresh air? Because it's just our systems are so used to living in chronic survival mode that those things just feel like totally foreign and not attainable. So I think that it is, it's, it's starting small and knowing it is going to be like really uncomfortable at first and feel really, really weird. And those are the little things that are going to add up and help, you know, all of our vulnerable systems to get a different baseline of, of safety and a different baseline of, of normal. And, you know, I know all of us as you know, clinicians and professionals, like we preach this stuff. And it also is really hard. Like there is a both and there too of like, it is super, super important. And it feels really weird and really silly. And just like, you know, I remember at the beginning, like I would constantly question, like, am I doing this right? Am I like taking mm -hmm. a deep breath, right? Am I like, you know, doing this meditation thing, right? Because it's just so foreign to our nervous systems. Yeah. I love how you said touch the earth, touching the earth, mm -hmm. talk yeah. about decolonizing therapy and, you know, thinking sometimes the most profound shifts happen from the most basic or the most simple things that we have access to. And we've learned, a lot of us have learned, you know, being raised outside of our race or our culture, or ethnicity, how to shut off some of those instinctual things that I think we just have. Cause when we learn how to turn inward and connect with maybe what our ancestors left inside of our bodies and I just love that you remind us, you know, connecting with mother nature, connecting with the sunshine, connecting with these things for so many of us, that is, that's what fuels us. And we've been really taught to, to tune some of that out. I thought of something else that um, I know has been a topic that can lend to wellness, but it's really rough too. Um, part of what 
happens in this process is that when you're altering your system, as we all know, other systems in your life may not be very uh, receptive to this. In fact, they may push back on it. So this could be a time when former support systems are no longer supportive and boundaries comes into play again. There's that word again. And determining who can I share this? What's going on with me with in my life? Who will understand? Or if they don't understand, will at least acknowledge they don't, but wants to know, wants to hear more in a non-judgmental way. And who are the people in my life that I really probably cannot safely share this with? Yeah. And making those determinations and it's, it's different for every person how much you want to fight that. Some people still want to make the attempt, and I, I, that's fine if that's what you need to do for you. But knowing that not everyone in your life is going to be welcoming this process as you, yeah. you start coming into consciousness. Mm. That's such a Which I think is, yeah, it's such a painful part of the process, too. Because in an ideal world, and for all adoptees out there, like you are worthy and deserving of everyone being able to hold space for this and being able to, you know, hear these truths and all of that. And the reality, unfortunately, is that people aren't all able to hold space for this or just want the narrative that's, you know, palatable to them and helps them to remain comfortable. And, you know, I think that the, the adoption, you know, adoptee experience is just riddled with so much grief. And that's another, I think, big grief point that I see um, you know, personally and professionally of like, it really sucks that people you thought were going to be there, people that have been in your life can't or are unwilling to hold space for that. And, um, you know, that is a whole other level of, of grief that isn't talked about. How has this been received in other spaces? Sure. Um, well, we self-published the paper back in June 2022, mainly because the whole academic peer review publication process, one can take years, and we just felt like we didn't want years to go by before this. Uh, we could share this with everyone. And two, not everyone can access those journals without paying really yeah. you know, amazing amounts of money to get an article that, truthfully, maybe five people will read. So we self-published on our websites and our blogs and immediately it resonated we started with a social media campaign with graphics uh dr kim and their partner created these amazing graphics so we kind of launched it that way and um since then it has caught the attention of people in the somatic trauma world and we were asked to slightly modify the original publication through a somatic uh, lens which we did and then it became peer-reviewed published and also that's open access so anyone can could download that and we have collectively and individually been presenting this around different places i've presented it at different mental health conferences i'm doing it again next week at a family and a couple counseling conference. We in hope to be able to present it at an international conference this coming summer. We've done, uh, we're still in the data analysis phase of research. So we interviewed 24 trans 
racially adopted adults in focus groups on their experience with consciousness to see how how it holds with this model. And we also did a survey. I think we had at least 80 people respond to the survey. So we have a lot of data that we still need to wade through. But it seems from what I'm hearing um, to really people really resonate with the model because it's so it's very broad. So it could really it could be unique to each person. Um, but people really relate to it. And it's something that I know we're all extremely proud of and just so grateful that if even just one person finds meaning from it, then the work is done. Yeah. Well, you got two right here. <laughs> yep. I was just going to say that. Yep. <laughs> so mission accomplished. Yeah. yeah. I would love to hear um, maybe a message that you have for adoptees or adoptive parents, or maybe even first families, birth families, um, when working with this model, and even professionals, what messages might you have unique to those different communities? Hmm. Well, interestingly enough, we did do a series for each of those groups with the exception of first parents, because we, we do feel like this model could actually impact every single person in the constellation. Um, we created uh, some helpful guidance for adoptees going through the process that include be kind to yourself, seek community, uh, avoid judgment of yourself, know that there is support out there. Um, for adoptive, well, I think we categorized it as adoptive family and friends. Like, mm. what can they do? One, I, almost the same thing, um, be curious understand uh, that this is not necessarily something that's meant to vilify you or be personal about you. This is a typical process that many people experience and you can seek out your own support if you need to. Um, we encourage in understanding that the adoptee in your life might need some time alone and time and space alone to kind of work through this and know that that is their right to have and do your own work in essence around that. We encouraged everyone to look at ambiguous loss models, Pauline Boss's ambiguous loss model to kind of get a sense of what is going on here with these emotions to understand that grief doesn't need to be situated with death. Uh, there's a lot of different ways grief can show up and ambiguous loss is a wonderful model to help people understand. We also encouraged, um, it's all coming to mind now, adoptees to really lean into DBT principles in, in a way of tolerance, stress tolerance, distress tolerance, um, sitting with ambiguity, doing those kinds of activities that can help you sit in the paradox. Mm. And then for professionals, we again, we encouraged, please know about ambiguous loss models so you can have some healing principles. It would be helpful if you knew some about distrust tolerance and being able to help people wade through ambiguity. And also look at, at um, your part in this in terms of, again, not trying to pass judgment or vilify, but we know a lot of the narrative is actually coming from adoption providers, yeah. mental health providers who are not mm -hmm. informed yet 
they sometimes really keep the narrative going that's not helpful. So looking at that, looking at your training, looking at your personal beliefs about adoption, being willing to learn differently, to know differently. Mm. Those are such powerful messages and, and just good things to anchor in, right? Like just good reminders um, and really helpful reminders too. Thank you. I think for so much of that, what it was coming to mind as you were saying that was just, this is such a process of unlearning and learning again. Like there's so much by professionals, by parents, by, you know, other entities, by adoptees that does have to be unlearned um, because it wasn't accurate or it wasn't, you know, totally representative and then having to relearn so much and it's just it can feel like a really daunting overwhelming process at times and it can also be um you know a really fulfilling really helpful really healing process and just so much of this is sitting in that like you know both and of these situations because that is just like the total reality of this experience there's a lot of both yeah. ands well tell us susan for our listeners and people out there um, first and foremost, thank you so much for coming and sharing all of this with us. This is like a wealth of knowledge, wealth of information. Where can people find you? Where can people contact you? Are there things that you're wanting people to know about that you're doing? Please feel free to let our listeners know where they can, you know, find you and get in touch with you. Sure. Um, I am on Instagram. And I could share with you once, because of course I don't know it by heart. I think it's Dr. Susan Branco, and that is my website as well. And you could download the um, paper about adoptee consciousness there. I am also on LinkedIn under my name, Dr. Susan Branco. One thing I can share that I'm starting to become more interested in, and if you go to my Instagram, you'll see it, and it's in collaboration with Elena Serrato of Healing Puentes. We're starting to look at ethical practices of investigators who are helping people find their mm -hmm. first families. And again, this is born out of years of stories and my own experiences of unethical con conduct. And it's just a, a part of that whole process that hasn't fully been explored. So that's the direction that um, I think I'll probably go next. And of course, always going in the direction of um, repairing historic human rights injustices, specifically in Colombia, but of course, across nations. Yeah. Um, you said you were going to be speaking at an event coming up. Can you tell us a little bit more about where that's going to be? Yes, I'm thrilled that it's going to be in St. Petersburg, Florida oh, next no. week. So I get to oh, be nice. in warm weather. It's the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors. And oh, it's a division of the American Counseling Association. So I'll be speaking about how to merge the adoptee consciousness model with family systems counseling. Oh, very oh. So amazing. Yes, please. To any providers listening, please lean into this. Like, obviously, this is something that touches our community personally, but there is such a need for more providers that are competent in this, that are using resources like these in order to help, you know, the people that they're serving. So that is, I can't say that enough of like, please, please, please use these you know, resources that are coming from adoptees, coming from those with lived experience. It will only help you within your practice. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your energy and your time with us today. And we hope you can come back and talk to us again some other time about other work that you're doing. Um, but it's so nice to, to meet you and to be in connection with you. So thank you so much. Thank you both. All right, guys, you can find us on Instagram at Adoptees Podcast or email us at adoptees at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will talk to you guys again soon. Goodbye. Thank you so much for listening and tuning into Adoptees Dish. We want to give a special shout out to Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Google Podcasts, where you can now tune in and find all our episodes. If you like what you heard and want to continue the conversation, you can email us at adopteesdish at gmail.com or find us at Dish Podcast on Instagram. Please share this podcast, talk with others, and always remember we have the power to heal broken systems. Tune in next week for our next episode. Thank you.